0: Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry.
1: Hey folks, it's Bridget here. I had the pleasure of sitting down with my dear friend, Farmer Lee Jones. Farmer Lee Jones is from the chef's garden, which was started by his family, the Jones family, well over 30 years ago. The Chef's Garden has supplied the world's finest chefs with fresh veggies. And some of these chefs include, get this, Julia Child, Thomas Keller, and so many more. Now, if you're wondering where you can get these delicious veggies, well, today you can visit FarmerJonesFarm.com and order yourself a box of their fresh veggies that will be delivered right to your door. Or you can visit their Farmer Jones Farmer's Market It's open on Saturdays, weather pending from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Farmer Lee also has a new book called The Chef's Garden, a modern guide to the common and unusual vegetables with recipes. And he tells us all about his book. He also shared with me the importance of agriculture and the influence that farming and plants have on our health. And he gives us some insight on the future of his farm. Now, folks, you're not going to want to miss this show. Sit back, get comfy, grab yourself your favorite Maker's Mark cocktail and enjoy the show. Farmer Lee, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you on the show today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Um, Can you tell our listeners, you know, how did you get the name Farmer Lee? Where did this come from?
2: My name is Lee Jones, and of course, you know the old storybooks, of course uh Farmer Jones, and uh it seemed to work um, so Farmer Lee Jones has been what I go by on Facebook and Instagram, and that's really kind of how Farmer Jones came about uh the chef's garden, of course, uh really was evolved from being truly a garden for the chefs, and ideally, that chef would have their garden to be able to walk out in the back and harvest kind of like Thomas Keller does. And now many other chefs uh, can go out and harvest product and bring it in. And that's really what the, the menu represents is what's in season.
1: Now, you know, I know from experience, experiencing the garden, you know, personally, I had the pleasure and honor of visiting a couple of times, you know, years ago with a bunch of bartenders and it was just amazing. And one of the things that you shared with us back then, which I would love to hear the story again now Is really, um, how did you get all the way from, you know, being a a small farming um, family into working with chefs like, you know, Chef Thomas Keller?
2: Sure. I mean, desperation, really. Um, uh, My dad was farming and I really kind of go back further. We're located uh, right along Lake Erie in Huron, Ohio. And of course, uh, Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest and it creates an amazing microclimate. And if you go back not too far into distant history, uh, before roads and refrigeration had developed to the point where there was a lot of outside competition, we think nothing. You know, you guys could get in your car from Chicago and come out to the farm in four and a half or five hours, and we don't think anything of getting on an amazing freeway like that and sipping 320 miles. But if you go back to the 30s, Uh, The roads and refrigeration had not developed to the point where larger farming operations could, and refrigeration had not developed to the point where that competition could come in. So if you can think about the proximity, one hour from Cleveland, one hour from Toledo, two hours from Columbus, four hours from Cincinnati, an hour and a half from Detroit, three and a half hours from Pittsburgh, all these large metropolitan areas with big populations of people. And then this amazing microclimate sitting right smack dab in the middle of it, the soil that we're on is actually all old lake bottom about 11,000 years ago. It's some of the richest sandy loam in the world. And so if you can visualize these farmers, a, a large farm was about 100 acres, because that's all one family could take care of. And so they were truck farmers. Uh, And they would go into the farm market, farmer's market, unlike what we think of today in Chicago or New York or or in any small city where there's a farmer's market. Go back in your childhood. Think about the family-owned grocery stores that were in your hometown when you were a child. Probably most of them are not there today. One by one, those small family grocery stores went out of business, the same as many of us small family farms because large chain grocery stores came in. I don't know if you remember the Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, A&P we call it. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
2: Kroger, Big Bear, Fisher Fazio. Chain grocery stores had the ability to buy for 300 stores, 1,400 stores. Those small family farms couldn't supply enough product to be able to sell to them. As the roads and refrigeration got better, larger farms in California, Arizona, Georgia, Florida, The Carolinas could do it on a bigger scale, and they could ship it into these areas. Uh, My dad went to work for a very progressive grower in the 50s, and he invested in things like hydrocooling, palletization, packaging, shipping, and bought and worked with about 65 other growers from this area. It peaked with over 330 vegetable growers in this area. And so he bought from about 65 growers, they would bring all their product in, they would pack it under one label, and then he would be able to supply those chain grocery stores. Mr. Nichols was the guy that my dad went to work for at 14. Mr. Nichols had no children that wanted to be involved in the business. He got to retirement stage, my dad bought the business. By the time my dad bought it, the 65 growers had diminished down to about a dozen vegetable growers in this area. So my dad, to offset that, continued to expand his acreage. And by the time I was 15 or 16, dad was farming about 1,500 acres of fresh market vegetable. Um, The majority of that hand-picked. And we shipped about 10 to 12 semi-loads of produce a day, trying to compete with bigger farms. 1,500 acres sounds like a lot, but we were competing against farms that were 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 acre farms there continues to be these conglomerations. The small ones go out of business, the big ones buy up another one, and they get bigger and bigger and bigger. Ultimately, and Bridget, you know that interest rates are historically low today. That's, I believe, in part why we're seeing such a a rapid growth in the real estate business, because people are recognizing, geez, if I'm going to buy a house, now's the time to do it. They're like 2.8%. It's It's unprecedented, and really the last 10 years, that interest rate's been very low. You're too young to remember, other than from the history books, but in the late 70s and early 80s, interest rates were 22%, and things were really out of whack with the economy. My dad got wrapped up in it. My dad had had some very good years, but he got wrapped up in 22% interest rates. They had a devastating hailstorm, and it wiped out all the crops. And when I was 19 years old, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mother and father and brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned the farm off one piece at a time, right down to my mother's car and our house. And uh, if you can remember going out with your high school crush, and then you you came home and uh, realized that he was breaking up with you to go out with your best friend yeah, and your heart was going to like split out of your chest, it was that kind of a heartbreak for me at 19. I just saw them work so hard and to just see it in one day, just be gone.
1: I can't imagine at 19, the trauma. It
2: was, it was amazing. I left, I was enrolled down at Ohio state Mm -hmm. in agriculture and marketing. I left school, came back, went to work with my dad, helped get my sister and brother through college. Uh, My brother has a horticultural degree at Ohio state. Uh, My sister's got way more education than either one of us. And she's not involved in the farm. And I'm the dummy in the family. We started back over. I could tell you stories all day that you wouldn't even hardly believe. I mean, we were really in survival mode. Mm. And uh, at the sale, there were some trucks that were so worn out that nobody would bid on them. I can remember the auctioneer saying, somebody give me $50 for this thing. It's worth that in scrap metal. And nobody would bid on them. And we got three trucks back very, very cheap. Mm-hmm. They really shouldn't have been on the road, but we resurrected them enough to be able to start back over at farmer's markets. We got a neighbor to rent us 50 acres and we started over some really crazy times. We started back at farmer's markets, farmer's markets like you and I know today, sure. which interestingly were at a historic low because they were not in vogue in the eighties. You know, My grandmother's generation was all about them. European folks that came over here loved and embraced farmers markets because that's the way they do it. They go every day and get their bread and get their fish or get their poultry, get their fresh vegetables and their fruit, and they cook and then they go back and do it again. So European folks love farmers markets, but the farmers markets were really at a historic low. But we started back there and we met, interestingly enough, a European influenced chef. Her name was Iris Balin. Uh, I have recently been informed she hasn't been Iris Balin for about 20 years, but I mentioned her in our book. I've mentioned her and give her credit. Every time I ever tell the story, Iris Balin came to our rescue. She was at the farmer's market that I was going to. We were going to five farmer's markets on Saturdays. The trucks were really in bad shape. We would mud the license plates over because the tags were all invalid on them, and we couldn't even afford to make the licenses valid, but, um. She said, You know, I'm looking for squash blossoms. I'm looking for a zucchini with a bloom. My dad had grown zucchini squash for years, and he was an expert zucchini squash grower. But you pick them eight inches long, two and a half to three inches in diameter, 20 pounds in a carton, and you put them on a pallet. And you just like a traditional zucchini you would see in the grocery store. And here was this lady in a chef's jacket wanting a zucchini, wanting us to harvest a zucchini the size of your pinky with a blossom on it and we just couldn't even imagine that we knew that you waited till the (laughs) zucchini got bigger and then Mm -hmm. you know and the bloom fell off and we brought them in for her and she just went crazy i haven't seen these like since i've been in europe i can't believe this and she turned us on to a chef and then another chef and then of course i know that you uh know jean-louis paladin or new jean-louis paladin at the watergate hotel in dc Sure. He was he came in highly touted Frenchman and he was very gregarious and very outspoken and his message really was if you want to grow for me you must figure out the right way to grow the food in America is crap <laughs> I'm dumbing that word down he didn't Oh say you can crap, say crap, the word yeah okay. <laughs> And 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 if you think about American agriculture during that period it was just It was really the economic engine because American farmers produce food cheaper than any other country in the world as it relates to our income. It was very efficient and it was the commodity that the United States could compete on a global marketplace for. And we produced that food very cheap, but that's exactly what it was, was cheap food.
0: Mm -hmm. And
2: Jean-Louis was saying, grow without chemical, grow for the flavor, grow for the flavor. And oh, by the way, grow for the flavor. And- we were so desperate to figure out a way to survive in agriculture. And between Iris and Jean-Louis and other chefs, really focusing on this message, we grabbed a hold of their ankles and we held on and we said, teach us. And and it's really just been just a, a very historic ride, historic in our own world, I guess. Certainly mm-hmm. not historic on the grand scheme of things in the world, but it was historic for us because it changed the direction for our family. And it really resonated with my dad most. And when we started sort of looking at what were we doing and started looking at what they were looking for, it had existed in America. We had just lost our way. Mm -hmm. And when you started looking back and a lot of our information came from agricultural books that were a hundred years old. If you think about it, it was pre-chemical, pre-synthetic fertilizer. They were rotating in a true sense of the form of rotation. Mm-hmm. They were using cover crops. They were rebuilding the soils. And Google this, anybody that's listening to this that's interested at all, and we all should be interested, from 1930 to 2020, the nutritional level in vegetables has gone down by over 50%, and it's continuing to go down at an increasing wow. rate. That's, that's a fact.
1: crazy, that's, Lee. 50%? crazy. 50%?
2: Fifty percent, and going wow. down now at an increasing rate. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. Google it. It's real. There's tons mm-hmm. of information being. And that's on
1: because it. of the chemicals and
2: it's it's because not, not the way good
1: practices.
2: It's because look these these farmers are great farmers. I'm not trying to throw any farmer under the bus. Mm-hmm. It's they're following the model that exists in America today. That is to keep the costs as low as possible. And if you could produce as many tons per acre as possible, as efficiently as possible, you can stay in business. Mm-hmm. Produce cheap food is the motto. And they do it really, really well. It's the way that we're feeding the plant. When we use chemical and synthetic inputs, we can fake the plant out. We can increase the yields. We can produce more tons per acre. Mm-hmm. We can use GMO, genetically modified crops, so that when we plant, we spray. You know, you tend to think of a farmer as plowing their fields. Farmers don't plow fields anymore because it's not efficient. You get more erosion, but also they've made planters that can go down through the fields, through the stubble, plant, and they spray at the same time. You think of farmers cultivating their fields. Mm -hmm. Farmers don't cultivate their fields anymore. Why? Because pharmaceutical companies recognize a word of entry in saying, look, we can give you a genetically modified plant, so it'll kill all of the weeds, so you don't have to go through there and mechanically eradicate mechanically eradicating is cultivation. It's just like if you had a hoe and you were hoeing the weeds out of your garden, it's like Mm -hmm. having hoes attached to a tractor. Every farmer used to go through after they had the crops planted. So they would plow, they would fit the ground, then they would plant the ground. And then when it started to come up, they would go through with hoes in essence attached to the tractor and eradicate the weeds mechanically. Mm -hmm. So by genetically modifying. The only thing that comes up is the soybean or the field corn or the wheat. The thing that's crazy is it not only kills the plant, it kills all the biology in the soil. There's more life below ground than there is above ground. Hmm. And so if we've wiped all that out. What does that mean? That means it doesn't have the ability to break the food down into a form that the plant can pick it up. So we're, that's where we're getting the, all the algal bloom in the Great Lakes. It's running off, unbroken down. I know there's a more scientific way to say that but the, the, the food for the plant isn't broken down and it's being eroded off into the lakes. And then it's, it's fertilizing the algal bloom. So in many ways, my dad had a saying that the only thing we're trying to do is get as good as the growers were a hundred years ago. Mm. And if you think about that, it's pretty amazing. You know, we jokingly talk about going out to harvest some vitamin D I need some vitamin D I'm going to go sit in the sun. We all have said that, but there's mm. so much more truth to it than we even imagined. So we one of the things that we've done since you were here last, Bridget, is the biggest investment in the history of the farm, we put a lab in. Now, you remember the old old semi-trailers that we used I to do. have the lab in. I,
1: yes, I went in the old lab. Yeah, I right. remember it very well. And I was very impressed by the setup. I had never been to a farm like yours anywhere ever. And I live in a small farming town to this day. You know, I've never seen anything like it. So,
2: Well, we blew it up times mm. 100. And it was because we felt like we really had to better, have a better understanding of what was going on in the soil and mm-hmm. what what was what effect were we having for the last forty years we've worked directly with chefs, um, really good chefs, and some really great cocktail uh, folks as well mm-hmm. and um, you know flavor was always the thing that they wanted, but they wanted it natural, they wanted it without chemical, do it the right way and so that had been our focus. Our hypothesis was that not only were we improving the flavor naturally, but we, we suspected that we were probably moving the nutritional levels up. Our future is health and wellness. So we've really been focused on this. So what we're doing is lab analysis on the soil. Just like if you were to go and have blood work drawn, you mm-hmm. find that you're high in iron, low in iron, high in calcium, all the minerals, what's going on with the minerals. And this is where it's really cool. And it's our personal belief. And It's whatever you want it to be for yourself. I'm not trying to cast my aspersions on anyone. It's our personal belief that God designed a system that's far superior to anything we can fake out chemically or synthetically. For us, it's about working in harmony with nature rather than trying to outsmart it. So once we find out the par on all these different minerals, different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun, just like our bodies will harvest vitamin D from the sunshine. Clover, alfalfa, buckwheat, rye, sedan grass. We have a 15 species planting that we're planting, and we're planting two thirds of our acreage. It's an unprecedented commitment to harvesting the sun's energy. We're planting those in the ground and harvesting the energy from the sun. And then when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the tomato or the spinach or the lettuce or whatever it is we want to grow, it picks that back up. And then when we eat it, it builds our immune system. I kind of look at the way that we farm on a massive scale as Western culture of medicine. Hmm. When you get a strep throat, what do they do? They give you a moxicillin, a penicillin, a fiascillin. It's always treating the symptom where the Eastern culture is get the body in balance and defend against the disease in the first place. So you've got this graph in your mind about the nutritional levels from 1930 to 2020, going down by 50% and going down at an increasing rate lay over that this consideration, a graph that says that kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, and allergies are a 3000% increase in the same period from 1930 to 2020. It's not sustainable. We have to get focused on regenerative agriculture for our society, for sustainability, for the environment, just to be able to survive. And it's really been exciting to kind of be on the front end of really work. Do we have it all figured out? Heck no, but it's really exciting working out here on the front end. It's, it's so, we were so rejoiceful to hear 11 Madison park when they reopened with all plant-based it's the future. Mm-hmm. It's really, yeah. really exciting stuff. The ripple effect of that is going to be profound.
1: Absolutely. And you know, I, like I said, you know, I, I've, I've been forced enough to visit your farm. And you do everything with such thoughtfulness and care, not only for what you're planting, but for your team members and for your family, for those that visit. Um, It's just a magical place. And what you're doing, you're, you're leaving a legacy is what you're doing. It's amazing. It's incredible. What I would love to know, Lee, from you, you know, you said, you know, you've worked with some of the top chefs, not just in the U.S. folks, but around the planet, around the world. Can you maybe give us some of your highlights of working with these chefs?
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, you know, we ship product over to the Mandarin Oriental Hong Kong twice a week, some into Dubai, the the cruise lines, and we don't even know where a lot of the product goes. Uh, Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, some of this is going on private yachts and it's being delivered onto those yachts with helicopters and they drop it back down. I think particularly during COVID, some of the folks felt safer out away from everything. Uh, We were shipping product down to Miami uh, where a chef had agreed to be in the bubble for a year. Uh, I don't know if you heard about that, but they agreed to stay in there. That was pretty crazy. But yeah, I mean... You know, Rene Redzepi, of course, over at Copenhagen
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: has invited us over a couple of different times. And I spoke over there at his mad food conference, Um, you know, of course, Heston Blumenthal. And there's just so many great chefs all over globally of the world. It's uh, just been an honor to, to learn from them and to get an understanding of what they're doing. So, you know, we're just continuing to learn every single day and it's exciting. There's never a dull moment. It's been a pretty crazy couple of years and bumpy for sure. Really bumpy.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. With, you know, we're still living in this strange time as well. I saw that one of the things that you, that you, um, did at the farm was reopen your stand. Can you tell us a bit about that?
2: Well, you know, Last year, 100% of our business was directly tied to restaurants, and that was just like a light switch shut off. And there are 156 families here. And like you said a little bit earlier, and I guess I should follow up a little bit on that, you know, in the old days, a farmer's goal was to leave the land in better condition for future generations. And if they had done that, they they had lived well, and they had done their job. And we still believe in the importance of that, but we think that it's so much more encompassing. We have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. But you know, there used to be a saying that if you can't make it in the real world, at least you could go back and work on the farm. And we've really tried to change the image of what regardless of what occupation any of us are in, we can take it on with pride and dignity and do the best that we can with that. Mm-hmm. And we want to, we want to be able to create a situation where families are paid a fair wage so that they can send their children to the schools of their choices, that they can buy a home, that they can have a car and they can have the American dream. Mm-hmm. And it's so important that agriculture, we can create a revenue stream to, to be able to pay our team in a, in a way that's meaningful and supports the, the talent that they are. If we don't pay them a competitive wage, the good people are all going to go to some other industry. Mm -hmm. So it's really imperative for us to take care of them, uh, the people and the environment. Uh, We have to watch out for that environment, not just the land that we're working on, but the environment in general and what we do and how we do that, how we use our resources, how we don't waste those resources. We have a great story of a neighbor that produces popcorn. And as a byproduct of popcorn, he has hundreds of tons of corn cobs, and he was paying to haul them over eight miles away. And basically it's a waste product for him, like taking it to a landfill to get rid of it. Oh, sure. And so they were hauling it over eight miles away and then paying to get rid of it. Well, we actually tore down four acres of repurposed greenhouses on the other side of Toledo took eight guys, 12 weeks, one piece at a time, brought it back and set it up on the best piece of ground that we could. And then all across the end, we put a header and we put two boiler systems in. And now we're paying our neighbor $26 a ton for a product that he was having to pay to get rid of. And he's delivering it less than one mile. The corn cobs are a renewable energy. It's our fuel source rather than using fuels, traditional fuels as we know them, We're using the corn cobs to heat the boiler. And then we ran a million foot of tubing through the ground. So it's in essence, it's a geothermal system Mm -hmm. that you're heating the water and that that heats the greenhouse enough to be able to grow the crops. And we're using a renewable energy. So it's those kinds of things that we have to look for and look for ways to limit our excess use of water. People, the environment and the land really are are critical. Yep, that's
1: that's an incredible incredible story I mean talk about really being proactive in your community helping out your neighbor and at the same time um really being kind to the environment all at the same time it's just really super cool (laughs) so
2: when these restaurants shut down Mm
1: -hmm. we were
2: kind of in an oh shit moment
1: oh Um,
2: it was kind of like deja vu Mm -hmm. here we go again and so we were looking for any base hits that we could create and we had a done retail at a roadside farm market that we built 40 years ago and it had been repurposed on the back 40 acres as a as an irrigation storage shed so we went back there dug it out it was sunken down in the ground it had a wasp nest and a fox den in it and it was full of irrigation equipment we unloaded it we drug it down the road literally behind a tractor power washed it gave it a new coat of paint put a new roof on it pulled it out and opened up to the community because the community was Nervous about going to grocery stores and where the food was being grown, who was handling it. And so we felt like it provided a real value to our community by having it open. Plus, it helped our team stay busy. We were committed. You know, you don't furlough a farm. We just, you know, we debated what do we do? Do we shut down? Well, you just don't walk away from a farm. It's kind of an intimate relationship. Uh, that may sound weird because it's a farm, not a person, but there's an intimacy with a farm that. It's kind of it. And I look at we kind of look at it like a relationship. Can you imagine uh, you and your significant other and your significant other decides they're going to walk away for a year and then walk back in a year later and say, hi, honey, I'm home. It ain't going to go so well. And we <laughs> felt we felt like the farm wouldn't receive us back very well. We had to stay a nurturer and lover. And despite the the, the pandemic, she kept going and growing and we wanted to keep our, fam- our family and our farm team safe, fed, employed, and try and do something to be able to help. And so we opened the roadside stand after 40 years. We we pivoted immediately to a nationwide home delivery where people could get product shipped directly to their home. Thomas Keller helped. He was working with the Lesion Farms. that was in the same situation we were with their lamb. They hauled these lambs ready for the restaurants and then the restaurants were closed. And so that was backing up on them. So we did a partnership kind of thing where they, uh, Thomas made a recipe that included lamb and vegetable and uh, Lesion farms brought the the lamb to us and we put them in the box in separate bags. And so it was safe and shipped them out, but uh, it was unbelievable to see the outpouring of support from the culinary world throughout this. And so, you know, it helped us keep moving. we just, our chef Jamie Simpson walked in, you know, normally we're picking edible flowers off and putting them in a package to ship out to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we were probably somewhat naive and thinking, okay, this thing is going to be over soon. So we wanted to keep the plants alive because we were afraid if things took back off and we didn't have anything to sell, not only were we going to lose the sales during the period where they weren't open, but then if they were open and we didn't have anything. So we were deadheading the, the flowers. And Jamie walks in and we were just throwing them on the ground and he comes in. And he's like, no, we can't do that. We got to figure out something to do with them. And so we made them. We uh, partnered uh, with Rare Tea sellers in Chicago and uh, we made an amazing tea with the edible flowers and some of his blend. And we made beet and carrot and pepper marmalades. And um, we had hundreds of pounds of sweet potatoes the restaurants and they weren't open. We were putting them in home delivery, but we dried some down and made dog treats. I mean we were just anything that we could. And you know we're just so grateful. It was unbelievable to see chefs that were at home that normally would be cooking for their restaurants. They were home cooking for their families and they would buy a box and then post on on Facebook or Instagram what they had created with the box and helped. And it really felt like it was a, a family sticking together and helping helping us through it we're just yeah. so grateful and humble for that
1: you certainly um got creative during those times and the fact that you made a tea with one of my favorite places in Chicago I think that that's just it's a beautiful thing right absolutely I mean, what a great partnership there you know just to get back to what you were saying early on because it's really bugging me um <laughs> that the vegetables that we currently have, have half of the nutrients that they should, what do you see the future of fruits and vegetables and the things that we put into our body? If that continues, we're in deep shit. <laughs> I mean,
2: well, what's really exciting is that we're seeing numbers as high as 300 to 500 times higher than the USDA average through harvesting the sun's energy through, we're actually taking fields of clover or alfalfa or mixed cover crops, harvesting those as a green chop, folding them back onto the fields to feed the biology. When we don't put the GMO on, we don't kill the biology in the soil and it can work and do all the things that it's got to do. And then you feed it with good, healthy product and that's alive and it breaks down the food into a form that the plant can pick it up. It works. It's get out of the way of nature and help nature rather than trying to outsmart it. And so it's really, really exciting. And that's part of why we wanted that lab in to be able to get an understanding of what we were doing. We're actually going into grocery stores, some big chains, some big box stores, and buying product, bringing it back and testing it. Interestingly enough, you know, the goal is produce as many tons per acre as possible, keep the cost as low as possible. The bigger the product, the lower the nutrient levels the smaller the product, the higher the intensity of nutrient, nutrient density, nitrate oxides. It's unbelievable. It doesn't matter even organic, inorganic. It's still being grown when it's being grown in a massive scale, uh, for the tons per acre, the nutritional levels aren't there. So we can change this and it's exciting. We actually are doing third-party auditing with Nestle because quite frankly, we didn't really figure anybody could even believe these numbers. Um, the superfoods are important. The watercresses, the arugulas, the kales, the Chinese cabbage, just pull it up. Superfoods are just testing off the charts. I think that, you know, people have this uh, misnomer that if we eat healthy, that it can't be good. And I don't believe that that's true. Um, I don't, Was it Hippocrates that said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food, you know, hundreds of years ago. And I don't think it could ever be more true than it is today. We're following plant strong. Uh, his name is Rip Esselton. His father was Dr. Esselton at the Cleveland Clinic and really focused on a plant based, plant forward diet. Now, am I advocating and promoting that we're all going to be vegetarian next year? No, but I think that portion there are shifts and there are changes and there's evolution. Meat portions, protein portions are going to be smaller and the vegetable can be center of the plate. No longer. I've seen it so many times when Mary and I have gone out to eat, and she wants a vegetarian option. And they say, well, we don't really have anything like that on the menu, but we can give you the chicken salad, and we'll take the chicken off. Those days are over. There's going to be more thought and meaning behind creating dishes that are plant and vegetable forward. And it's very exciting to think about what the future is.
1: Yeah, I think so too. You know, you mentioned the term organic, which has been used everything from vegetables to to even to cocktails. I mean, you name it. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that term organic?
2: Well, I think that there are a lot of people out there that are attempting to do organic that are really working hard and doing a great job. Those tend to be smaller growers like us, but I think that there are billions of dollars being spent every day to manipulate us into thinking that something is good for us or safe. Nature, I, I'm not trying to name a particular company, but they use certain buzzwords that they think are hot hot buttons for us and they try and promote those. And they have people that are really smart doing word manipulation and creative ways to be able to try and present something as good or good for us or safe or something. And ultimately, I, I think that we have to really be cautious about that. Know your grower know thy grower, understand who it is, what they're doing. And I, I mean, I encourage you, go to those farmers markets and build a relationship. That's where this, we allowed this to happen. We allowed a disconnect in this country for us to be able to not know where our food was coming from. And it happened when moms, after World War II, moms were tasked with working outside of the home. And it was gender specific at that time. I'm, it's not a chauvinistic comment. It's just that during that period in America, it tended to be that mom stayed home, took care of the family, took care of the household chores, fed the family, cleaned, washed, did all of those things. But when World War II came, it was all hands on deck, literally. The women were then asked to build machine guns. They were welders. They were building army tanks and ships and anything that it took. And then all of a sudden we recognized, gee, we could be a two-income household. And so the two income household was the point where large companies recognized an opportunity for convenience. Do you remember? I mean, we thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread, the frozen TV dinners.
1: Oh, I remember when they, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, they
2: were garbage. Mm-hmm. The salisbury
1: steak. Salisbury steak. Oh, it's wine. Like
2: and the frozen carrots <laughs> yeah. and peas. They were so gross. And we got to watch them in front of a television. Mm-hmm. And. You know, and Mom thought it was great. she could pull it out of the freezer, put it in the oven, it.
1: yeah,
2: and it was done,
1: yeah, yep. and
2: so we'd allowed that disconnect. It becomes up to us becomes up to the next generation behind us to reconnect with where the food's grown, how the people on those farms are being taken care of, how the land is being taken care of, how the food is being grown and and I think that never before in the history of the United States where globally that people more been more interested, more savvy, more in tuned with where their food is coming from. And I think that's wonderful.
1: Oh, I, I agree with you 100%. And, you know, one of the things I that I do want to talk to you about is, you know, if you're not fortunate enough to live in a place that maybe has a farmer's market or live in rural areas like I do, or that, like, you know, like where the farm is, for instance, like something that's happening, especially in cities and even in some small towns are food deserts. Right. Or yeah. what we're calling even food apartheid at this time, where convenience, when you talked about convenience, children are getting their dinners from the local 7-Eleven or bodega, you know, whatever it might be. And it's really sad because if we're talking about fresh vegetables right now, a lot of them that we're buying from the big grocery stores having, you know, 50 percent nutrients. And, and, you know, do these kids even have a chance? What are your thoughts
2: yeah, it's a rough situation. There's no way you can find anything healthy enough to mm-hmm. sustain you or to, to create a healthy environment. It's, everything's going the wrong way with that. Right, yes. you know, you know the, health, the health issues continue to go up as the mm-hmm. health declines. Those are tough calls. We've got to figure out ways to be able to get healthy food to people. Um, one of the yeah. cool things that we did with our home delivery Some people throughout the year knew that they were really in a fortunate situation to be okay. But they also were very cognizant of the fact that a lot of places weren't where people or families were not okay. And they could actually go on and buy their own box, but then at a discounted rate, they could contribute another box. Um, Rachel Ray was so supportive through this Mm -hmm. whole thing. Um, There were times where she would go on and buy a box for herself, where a lot of times she was going on and not buying anything for herself. And she would say, I want to buy 50 boxes. And she'd send them out to people. And many people that are lesser known than Rachel Ray, but just people, just people with compassion and a heart to be able to try and help somebody in need. So I think that there's opportunities for us to look for creative ways to do that and continue to do it and expand it. Uh, Maspiet Kitchen in uh, in New York and New Jersey have been really, really aggressive, feeding millions of, of plates of food. Uh, they, feed, they prepare them all kosher. You don't have to be uh, Jewish to partake in one of those meals. But can you imagine having hunger, but then also a religious conviction that said that you couldn't eat that if it wasn't right. prepared right? And right. so it's just, I mean, it was so resonated with us that they were really doing great things that we've been involved with them. And uh, it's been exciting to see the work that they're doing. And of course, the needs are constant because yeah. there's just so many people that need food.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, it, you know, your messaging is so important. It is so important um, in that the chef's garden is doing the right things to be sustainable and to, to last throughout generations, right? And giving those good messages out to the community worldwide as well. So when people like myself, you know, my mother, I want to make sure that I know where our food is coming from. I want to make sure our daughter Paige, you know, is not eating junk food all day that her immune system will have a great chance when she gets out in the world. And especially as we're fighting through this pandemic that is still here. So indeed, it's all very, very important. And it starts with folks like you getting out the messages so folks like myself and our listeners can educate the next generation coming up as well. It's really, it's, it's an important message. It's, it's all about, I mean, it's, it's life. It's, it's, it uh, really is. And it's, yeah. you know,
2: I appreciate those kind words, but there, there's none of this that we do alone. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, this is you and it's I and it's listeners. It's really being thoughtful and conscientious and purpose driven. And we have a choice and we need to really be conscientious about how we're spending our dollars and what we're mm-hmm. going to support and when we spend them. And I think that the younger generations are so savvy uh, so much more savvy um, maybe than I was when I was that age, but thinking about you know, where the food is coming from, what types of things it supports, how are those family and farm members being treated? Are they being paired, paid fair wages? And what are you doing to take care of the environment? So I think that it's really exciting to see how, Purpose-driven and thoughtful, they are about how they're spending their dollars, and I think we've got to be awake. We've got to have our eyes open. This is important. We've got to get it, and if we don't, who will?
1: Right, right. And if we don't, then you know the next generation is basically sunk. So it's it's really important, you know, the messaging that you're put out. I think that um, something that our listeners would love to know—a yeah, fun question—and I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but what is your favorite vegetable? <laughs>
2: I have been asked that a million times sure and you have. Um, I always say, what season is it? Look, oh. I think that mother nature provides such a natural rhythm to what we should eat because we can get asparagus 12 months a year and ship it in from anywhere. Does it make sense? Does it make sense from an environmental standpoint? Does it make sense from a cost standpoint? I think that if we will allow mother nature to dictate our menus and our recipes. One of the greatest questions that makes me so happy is when a chef calls and says, farmer, I'm putting my menu together for next week. What should I be putting on it? Hallelujah.
1: Yes.
2: And and, you know, we can do the same thing when we go to farmer's markets. And when you think about it, if you can visualize and hear from the Midwest and a rural community as well, and I'm not trying to promote that stuff that's homegrown should be cheap, but I'm talking about the real value in it. It's a Sunday. Out here in our farming community, we kind of go back to when we can those ideas of rest on Sunday. And so folks are out for a Sunday afternoon drive out in the country. They go buy a nice little farm, quaint farm, and there's a picnic table out in the front yard and there's some beautiful tomatoes in a quart basket, and they're vine-ripened, and the basket is heaping full, and there's a can there, and it's self-serve, and the, and the tomatoes are $3 a quart. And they're so good that when you bite into it, and there's sun-ripened, and you have to have a napkin in one hand and the tomato in the other because the juice is going to drip down your chin, and it's just going to be so delicious. And it's $3. It's now January. You go in the store, you get this tomato, it's kind of red. You cut it open, it's mostly whitish, and there's no juice in it, and it's dry, and it's $6 a pound.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Buy them when they're $3, put them in a can, preserve them, save them, and celebrate them in their peak seasons. When, I, when asparagus is in season, we should eat it three times a day. And when it's out of season, we should lust for it for 10 more months.
1: Mm-hmm. That's Amen. my answer. I love that. My goodness, now I'm hungry. Have you, got,
2: have you got your book
1: yet? I don't have my book yet, but let's talk about your book. That's next on my list.
2: It could also be used to hold down like anything for blowing away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like yes.
2: 670 tell pages. Me, that it's- is
1: impressive. So I want to hear all about your book, Lee. Tell us where it's available and tell us what we're going to learn from reading your book.
2: Well, you can go to Amazon. I would prefer you go to your favorite local bookstore Mm -hmm. that are really doing a good job of bringing great diversity into the bookstores with lots of of wonderful books. So if you've got a favorite bookstore, go there and spend the dollars with them if you can. But uh, it's two and a half years in the making. In the middle of pandemic, we're still plowing through this book. You know, people ask, how long did it take? I say 40 years of trials, failures, tribulations and hopefully occasionally a success. If I if I were to say anything about the book, I would hope that it would inspire people. You know, you go in the grocery store, you go to the farmers market, you walk by the celery root or the watermelon radish and mom never cooked that, dad never cooked uh-uh. that. Okay. I don't know anything about that. I'm not going to I'm not going to pick that up. You're not going to take this book to the farmers market. But rest assured, if you can find it at the farmers market, buy it, bring it home. You're going to find some guidance on what you could do with it and play with it. One of the big things, look, unless you've lived under a rock for the last three years, you know that we have a waste issue. And it's unconscionable mm-hmm. to think about the food deserts in America or throughout the world. And yet we have 40% food waste. And it's just sickening to think about that. But one of the things that, that we really try and bring forward in this, if you think about all the energy, all the water, all the nutrients, all the love, all the care that goes into produce a plant, let's just take, for example, a Brussels sprout. Have you seen a Brussels sprout grow before? No. And they grow to like three and a half, four feet tall. It's a magnificent, it's a glorious, glorious plant with these beautiful leaves that look kind of Mm. like individual cabbage leaves. And what those do is they provide a canopy because there's this long stalk that
0: mm-hmm. grows right
2: up the center. I mean, they're, they're almost like a baseball bat. They're that thick. So if you can imagine this glorious, magnificent plant and all this energy growing just to produce the Brussels sprout and you have these leaves, if we can reduce the waste by utilizing the entire plant, I would defy you if you were blindfolded or any of your listeners to be blindfolded and you were eating a Brussels sprout leaf or a collard green, I would I would not bet you the farm, but I would bet you a drink that you couldn't tell the difference between a Brussels sprout leaf and a collard green. They're in the cruciferous family, which means cabbages, kales, broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, all the same family. So if we can utilize more of the plant, well, of course, it's sweet corn season. We husk the corn. We throw the husk away and the silk away. We talk about an amazing tea that you can make, a corn husk tea.
1: Get out of here. A corn husk tea. I've never heard of such a thing. It's really
2: about inspiring. Do you need to follow these recipes letter by letter? Jamie and Tristan spent enormous amounts of hours, 100 recipes in the book. But they're really just to inspire you to be able to not be intimidated by things. Play with them. Try it and think. There's nothing that should be wasted. When you do the trimmings, you make a vegetable stock. We make a bone stock. You can actually take this long stalk. Why did we uh, use bone marrow over in Europe? Because there were countries, through their survival of hundreds of years, they learned to use every part of an animal. Mm -hmm. The gelatin between the hooves, the oxtail, the eyeball, the brain, every part of that animal was used. Why can't we celebrate the vegetable in the same fashion? You can actually make a vegetable marrow from the center of that stalk and it's amazing. And if we think about utilization of all energy that goes into mm-hmm. producing a vegetable plant, what better way to celebrate its life than to be able to utilize the entire plant.
1: Absolutely. And we can find Farmer Lee just said we go to your local bookshop or go online. The book is The Chef's Garden: A Modern Guide to common and unusual vegetables with recipes. This is a book not to be missed, folks. That is for sure. I think it's terribly excitingly.
2: We were excited to launch it. It, it came out about four months ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a nice piece on the Today Show uh, about six weeks ago. And then it re-aired again on Labor Day.
0: Wow. And, it,
2: and it was kind of cool. We were watching the analytics on the computer and there were like about 12 people from around the world looking at the website and then the today show piece hit and you just saw the thing just go
0: boom
2: we were we were actually watching the ticker that was just spinning spinning like like at the speed of being in a taxi cab when you didn't have enough money and you were nervous about not having the, enough money to pay the taxi cab and that meter <laughs> seemed like it's going so fast
1: so exciting <laughs> it's wonderful it's so you. Well, you've had a lot of highlights in your career, I have to say. You know, your work through the James Beard Foundation, you've had Julia Child at the Chef's Garden. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. What are your hopes and dreams? Like, what do you hope to accomplish, Lee, in the next, let's say, five to ten years? Well,
2: it's really continuing to work on the nutrient nutrient densities of vegetables and looking for ways that we can work helping the environment and people Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's really about what we can do to be able to produce Ferran Adria was here with Charlie Trotter. Mm -hmm. Um, and he, he, he made a speech while he was here and he said, we've explored every species of fish, poultry, beef, and lamb that exists in the world, but there are literally thousands of plants to be explored. And it's so exciting to think about the future for vegetable and for plants. It is inevitable that we move towards a plant-based, plant-forward future. It's inevitable for society, for sustainability, for regenerative agriculture. And so just I think that our work is it's for us, what's important to us is looking for ways that we can increase the the nutritional values and finding more ways and exploring more ways to be able to make this product available to everybody. But as well, to be open to being able to play with vegetables and recognize that it doesn't have to be medicine in the form of not good for you. They're really good and they're good for us.
1: Absolutely. You know, and on that note, I want to thank you so much for being on Served Lee. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be of your acquaintance over the last, I don't even know, for a long time. (laughs) I think I met you years ago at the James Beard Awards and it's just been a joy to watch your journey unfold and all the new and important work that you do because it affects us all. You know, the little plant that you are growing and what you are learning will affect us for generations to come. So thank you so much for all the good work that you and your team put forth really for the better of humanity. So just thank Thank you you so much for being on the show today.
2: It's been an honor to know you over the years. And, you know, we shouldn't mention how long we've known each other because <laughs> we're getting old. The difference is you stayed young and beautiful and I got give old and break. fat.
1: Oh, give me a break. <laughs> I've got my trifocals on today. I'm so glad that this is audio only, <laughs> but, but thank you. And I want to wish you and your family and your team just some great health. And a lot of peace during, especially during this time, Lee. Thank Thank you you
2: so much.
0: much. Cheers to you.
2: Thanks. Cheers to you.
0: Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Killed the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.